Hey everyone, welcome to Rolling Hills Online. Wherever you are in the world, we're glad that you're joining us today. In addition to our online campus, we have two physical locations in Franklin and Nolensville. If you're in the Middle Tennessee area, we'd love to meet you in person. If this is your first time joining us, we would like to invite you to check out our new here page at rollinghillscommunity.org. Here, you can find out more about who we are, what we believe, and what to expect when worshiping with us. If you've been with us before and want to find out how to get involved, please visit our Next Steps page. This is where you can learn more about baptism, partnership, missions, community groups, and more. If you're joining us live, we encourage you to jump into our chat. This is a great way to connect with our online community and further discuss today's message. In addition to the chat feature, you will find today's sermon notes and a link to the Bible so that you can follow along. Have something that you would like for us to pray with you about? Click the prayer request link at the bottom of the page. We would be honored to join you in prayer this week. If you feel called to partner with us financially, you can give online through the giving page of our website. Your support allows us to continue this opportunity to share the message of Christ around the world. So thank you. Again, welcome to Rolling Hills. We hope that you feel at home. Made in your likeness, we are united. Whole and complete, we are found in you. One love, one spirit, one mindset. Your word is our truth. Good morning. Hey, thanks for being here today and for helping us continue um, this series on the book of Philippians. I'm going to travel back in time in my mind right now to the year 1996. It's the year that I um, did what a bunch of these kids who've been sitting over here today are about to do, graduated from high school. And so congratulations. Um, I also did what they did after graduating high school. I went off to youth camp that summer. I had signed up to participate. It was like that final, oh goodness, this is my last youth camp with student ministry, with high school friends before we all head off to college and go our separate ways in the fall. And it was there that summer in 1996 at youth camp in the coast of North Carolina where something kind of significant happened to me. It was in that moment, you see, I was heading off to college not knowing what was next, not knowing what I would do or what I would study or what I would major in or where I would find myself later in life. But it was there that week that God chose to reveal to me that it was this that I would be doing this because as people who believe in Jesus Christ, we know that every single one of us is given a gift of the Holy Spirit that we're supposed to manifest in the life of the church to serve him and be ministers of his gospel. But in some cases, God calls somebody to step out and do it vocationally and get a paycheck. Like this is literally my job. So I went off to Appalachian State University that fall knowing that I would study communication because I figured I had to get over that and, and learn how to talk to people about this word. So I come home from camp all prepared to tell my parents, um, hey, guess what? I think I know what I'm going to major in. I know what I'm going to do with my life. I, I know what God wants for me. And so we start to have that conversation and my dad says, well, yeah, I knew that. I was like, well, why didn't you tell me? And he said, well, I figured you already knew that. And that was like most of our conversations. The fun thing about this one, however, is that it took place at Carowinds. Anybody ever been there before? 
It's an amusement park on the, uh, right there in North Carolina. And we called it Charlotte, but literally Carowinds, it's like six flags over the Carolinas, sits right in between North and South Carolina. And that's where we had that conversation. I went there as a kid growing up on season passes. And no matter how many times I go to Carowinds, I always start with the exact same thing. You're thinking, oh, the Wayne's World Hurler, because that's a good roller coaster. No, not really. I start on the sidewalk as you make your way past the original ticket counter to go off and see all of the rides looking at this little brick section that goes right in the middle doing this number. If I was at Carowinds today as an almost four-year-old person, I would do exactly what I did as a kid back then. North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina. Ooh, look, now I'm in both. Like literally because the dividing line between the two states runs right through Carowinds and every kid, no matter who you talk to, if they grow up in the Carolinas, they start their trip to Carowinds that way. North Carolina, South Carolina. If you went there, you'd do the same thing, and you have no idea. You're starting off this message. You have no idea how many times I'm going to do that number between now and when we finish our message today. I was privileged as a student pastor and then even serving here on staff at Rolling Hills to be able to travel to Ecuador a number of times in South America on mission trips. And they have a similar experience there, although it's much, much cooler. You see, Quito, Ecuador, there's a monument to the equator because that's where the hemispheres divide themselves between north and south. And several hundred years ago, some French... I don't know, expeditioners came to town and told the Ecuadorians where the actual dividing line was. And so they set up a big monument. And right in the 70s and 80s, they actually built an even bigger monument. There's like right there on this brick line that goes down a sidewalk, this 30 meter, I don't know how many meters that is, but if you're bored, you've already looked it up on your phones, like 30 meters high, this monument. And you can do this number while you're traveling to Quito. It's like a flea market, little food courts out there. And you can go and you can go Northern Hemisphere. Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. And the interesting thing about that is that they later discovered that those expeditioners were wrong. And that the monument, 30 meters high, and the little brick that goes right down the middle of the sidewalk where you can celebrate both the Northern and the Southern Hemispheres, the actual line that divides the earth is about 240 meters that way. So after you've taken your pictures and done your dance between two halves of the planet, you actually hike up a little hill and see a much smaller monument to where the actual equator is. I was preparing for um, teaching time today and looking at an NIV commentary that talks a lot about the book of Philippians and really what the whole general idea is behind this work of Paul. And, And I ran across this quote It says, it is impossible to place one spiritual foot on the foundation of the flesh and one spiritual foot on the foundation of Christ. Both must be firmly planted on one side or the other. And sadly, as believers in Jesus Christ, as a believer called Nick Allen, I continue to spend much of my life going back and forth between foundation on Christ foundation on the flesh, and trying to figure out that ever-elusive method of somehow perfectly straddling and living between two worlds when that is not what God intended for me. It's not what he intended for any of us. And this word today says something to us about what it means to be a person who attempts the futile, the back and forth, or the living in both 
And it's a good invitation and a final reminder for us to concentrate our efforts on living completely in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray today that somehow the words from the truth of this book called your word would jump off of the page and etch themselves into our lives and that God, you would help us be a people who live life firmly planted on a foundation in Christ with no desire and no mess ups and no issues looking back and pressing into an older way of life and an older method of knowing you, but that God, we live in Christ. It's in his name that we pray by his power that we are made alive. God, thank you for Jesus. Help us to focus on him and in him today and be changed because of it. Amen. So this week we land squarely at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to spend two weeks on this chapter, but today we want to kind of launch back from Philippians chapter 2. Jeff did a great job last week summarizing for us what it means to live a life that's Godly, what it means, because this chapter in the Bible really is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, because one of my personal heroes, Reggie Joyner, says that all Scripture is equally inspired, but not all Scripture is equally important. And passages like this literally do rise to the top ten of our faith because they help us understand what it is to have the mind and the attitude of Jesus Christ, which is the aim of every believer, to be more like him. And Paul reminds the recipients of this letter and the church in Philippi that he helped plant that He's in chains, that he's suffering for Jesus. And then in verse 18 of Philippians chapter 2, he says, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And I'm blown away by that because Paul is rejoicing from chains. He can't write this letter himself because he's literally bound. One of his visitors is coming to him and he's saying, hey, write these words down and take them to Philippi because what they do to follow Jesus matters more to me than the suffering that I'm enduring for the gospel right now. I am excited about the report that I hear of them and I want to tell them to go even harder after Jesus. So let's do this whole thing called a letter. And oh, yeah, could you scratch? my nose because it itches and I haven't been able to reach it for two days. Like that's just my conjecture. But I imagine how horrible it would be to be stuck in chains. And yet he's thinking of them. He says, rejoice with me. And then if you start into chapter three, he says the same thing again, but not before this little buffer happens where he tells them about a couple of people. He says in verse 19 of chapter two, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. And this is the deal. Like at the beginning of Philippians chapter two, verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy seat. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And he's just not telling the Philippian believers that they're supposed to do this. Now he gives them an example of somebody who does do this. Timothy is like the valedictorian of their faith. And then he goes on to give them this other guy, Epaphroditus. He's like the salutatorian. For he, in verse 26, longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. This guy cares more about them too. Paul's not only set for them what it means to have the mind of Christ, then he gives them a couple of examples of people who literally, it's in your notes today, embody what it means to think and act and breathe and move and live like Jesus. You know somebody like that and you're probably mad at them <laughs> because it just seems that no matter what, they're able to take circumstances and difficulties and, and struggles and challenges in life and look more like Jesus through it. There's Timothy. There's Epaphroditus. These guys are being celebrated by the Apostle Paul as those who embody 
Philippians chapter 2, having the mind and the attitude and the thoughts of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, he starts out again, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So he says, be glad and rejoice with me in my suffering, Philippians 2, 18. And now further, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. You're not only going to rejoice in your suffering, but you're going to rejoice in Jesus. That whole idea of rejoice, which is mentioned like 25 times in Paul's letters, means be glad and live well. Like in the middle of suffering, in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of your darkest circumstances, I want you to thrive as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's called rejoicing. And you're only able to do that with two feet firmly planted in Jesus Christ. Are you able to rejoice through suffering? If you are, it's because both feet are in Jesus. If not, it's because both feet are in the flesh or you're struggling to maintain a presence in both worlds. It is only by a foundation that's firmly fixed on Christ that we're able to rejoice in anything much less difficulty in life. And Paul invites them to rejoice. Well, who is them? He says it right here, my brothers and sisters. This is believers in Jesus Christ. This is not an invitation to rejoice for people who don't know Jesus because the opportunity to rejoice in suffering is only available to people who know Jesus. And so a question for any of us today is, do you know Christ? Have you acknowledged the fact that before God you are a wicked, dirty sinner and that there is no love apart from knowing Jesus and that because Christ died and was buried and rose again, he was crucified for our sins and for our wickedness so that we might have a relationship with God. Step one, before any of the rest of this chapter is possible, is for us to examine and fully understand do I know Jesus? Could I be the recipient of a letter like this called a brother and or a sister of Christ? It only comes through salvation. So further, he writes to people who are saved, people who know Jesus, people who call themselves Christians, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things. And then you're reminded, dude's in prison. And he says, it's not hard. It's not hard for me to write these things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. That word safeguard in, in Greek is asphales, and it literally means true and certain. This is a certainty for you. I'm writing you true things that you can build your life on. And then he gives them a warning. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who let the dogs out? This week I was looking at this passage of scripture and examining the fact that Paul called these people dogs and my little four-year-old boy says, Daddy, I got to tell you something. And I was like, what, buddy? And he says, we know a song about dogs. <laughs> then he sang it. These are different kind of dogs all together, buddy. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, this is literally people who are sneaking their way into the life of the early church and telling them that it's not just about Jesus, it's Jesus and Paul writes, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. The funny thing about this is that when Paul says mutilators of flesh, those evildoers, those dogs, mutilators is literally false circumcision. What he's saying is that anybody that's telling you that your stance in the kingdom of heaven and your stance in this church is based on a physical wound that you had on the eighth day because of circumcision and that if you weren't previously circumcised, then you need to be circumcised in order to qualify as a follower of Jesus. All of that extra, Paul's saying it doesn't matter because it's not a circumcision of the flesh. It's a circumcision of the heart that counts. And this is a reminder for people 
It's a reminder, and it's in your notes today, beware of anyone who would add a qualifier to your salvation. Some sort of extra, some sort of weaker sign of a covenant when Jesus is all you need. And then he says, beware of placing pride in your qualifications. Because then he says, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And then he lists them. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's atop that Tina. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul was saying, I followed that Old Testament law. And not only that, I punished people who didn't follow that Old Testament law. We know from the book of Acts that Paul was responsible for the threats of people who were no longer following to the letter. That Old Testament law. And Paul was responsible for even their debts. He's saying, if you think you have qualifications of what it means to be called God's, I've got more than you. And his were both nature and nurture. Born, circumcised, part of this family, all of the things that he couldn't control, zeal, effort, law giving, all of the things that he thought in this life he could control. Paul's saying both. I can live in North Carolina. I can live in South Carolina, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. I've got it all covered. We're not only supposed to watch out and beware of anybody that would add qualifiers to our faith, extra expectations of what it means to know Jesus outside of the fact that Jesus died for us. We're also supposed to beware of any sort of pride that would step in and tempt us to base our relationship with Jesus on ourselves. It's, it's like when we come in here and we sing and we thank God for his amazing grace and then we go out there and we tell people they need to act more like Jesus before we're willing to share that with them. And that's not an us. That's a me. Because as much as I've said the phrase, you can't expect somebody to act like Jesus until they know Jesus, I spend a lot of my time outside in this world wishing that people would act more like Christ regardless of whether or not they have known and experienced him. It's a qualifier. It's a qualifier to say that if, the, if you knew Jesus, then your life would be better. Oh, if you knew Jesus, you wouldn't do that. If, oh, if you knew Jesus, you wouldn't think that. Oh, if you would, knew Jesus, you wouldn't post that. Oh, if you knew Jesus, you wouldn't... It's a qualifier, and it's a mark of pride. It's a mark of pride when I value the tweets of Matt Chandler because he pastors a mega church, more so than the tweets of Steve Gompers who pastors a tiny church. It's a qualifier, and it's putting pride in qualifications. It's like saying, well, Nick Allen was raised in church, went almost every Sunday, memorized a whole lot of verses growing up and could recite them, several still today. Went to seminary after graduation so that I could get another degree in the Bible. There's a list. And I know that putting confidence in any of those things outside of Christ I know that adding qualifications for someone else to know Jesus as much is literally like living life. North Carolina? South Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina, or maybe I'll just waffle back and forth 
and try to create my own little balancing act between both. I've been invited to know and to trust only in Jesus. The hard thing is that this can always go both ways. I can always find someone that I am better than, more qualified than, but I can also always find someone better and more qualified than me. And regardless of whether or not it's a qualification of pride or a mark of shame, neither ends of that spectrum is focused on Christ. They both point their fingers right back at me. Second Peter chapter two, verse 22. All you have to do is remember the number two in order to find this reference. Peter writes this, of them, he's talking about those false prophets, those dogs, those evildoers, of them, the Proverbs are true. And then he quotes two Proverbs, one of which I have stated before on a stage like this is my favorite. It says, a dog returns to its vomit. I know a story about that, about a dog named Hawkeye. And I used to think that that proverb only referred to the idea of returning to sin, that when the God of this great universe wanted to describe for us as people who are visual learners what it means to be a person who repeats the same mistake over and over and over and over and over and over again, he said it was like a dog throwing something up and deciding that he wanted to eat that again. And I'm looking at the vomit, oh, the sin in our life. And now realizing because of these words from Second Peter that it's not just the sin that tangles us up, sometimes it's the old way of living according to the good things. It's being a person that's solely focused on Christ and then deciding, oop, I got another degree. It's being a person who's solely focused on Jesus Christ and then saying, oop, I memorized three more verses. Oh, I'm a person that's solely focused on Jesus Christ and then saying, I just completed FPU in record time and I'm debt free. Like, oh, I'm focused on Jesus and his qualifications in my life and his resume of who I am and his gift of forgiveness for me. And oh, now my kid just accepted Jesus too. I don't want to return to the parts of my faith where I think it's about me when I've been invited to know and believe that it's only about him. And then Peter gives us another illustration from another proverb. It says, a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. I had to look up what a sow is. It's an adult female pig. Maybe you already knew that. Then I didn't feel so bad about not knowing that because over the last 200 years, Google told me that that word has diminished in use by over 90%, which means we should bring it back. Like start using, try this week to use sow just in everyday normal conversation and then we'll see that word kind of on the upswing. It's when the Bible wanted to give us a picture of what it's like to be a person who lives North Carolina, South Carolina living said it was like a pig that got all cleaned up and then decided to wallow in the mud again. And so Paul continues. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. This idea of losing something is like, oh no, I can't find my car keys. No, it's like damage. It's a violent kind of thing. I'm going to not lose it. I'm going to throw it away. It's not an accident. It's an active participatory kind of thing. I am now looking at this as if it doesn't matter and I'm throwing it away so that I can't have it anymore. One time I watched this episode of Hoarders Buried Alive. Please don't watch that show if you haven't already. It's like onlooker delay. You will not be able to divert your eyes. It's the scariest thing ever. Well, I watched this man as they put over 100 bags of literal trash from his house outside by the road. And in the very next scene after the commercial break, because I stayed to watch, he was outside going through it and taking things by the handfuls back inside. It it wasn't an active throwaway for him. Somebody was taking these things from him and he wanted them back. Paul's saying, that's not this. I now consider all of that a loss. I'll throw it away because none of it matters in comparison to what? In comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says even further, I consider them garbage. That's Rubbish. I consider them worthless that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, become like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from dead. There's not a better passage in scripture for somebody describing to us in literal detail. You could write a song about this, what it means to yearn for, to long, to desire more than anything else in life, Jesus. So much so that not only would you describe all of your past ways of living according to your sinful nature as rubbish, but you would take all of your good things, all of the great things, all of the things that you aspire to, all of the things that people pat you on the back for and say, even that is garbage compared to knowing Jesus more, and it does something for us. Christ, it's in your notes, Christ counts most, and knowing Christ's cost, because we will become a people that are willing to get rid of everything in order to know nothing more than him. It does something to us. It changes our perspective. Knowing Christ literally changes our perspective. It's not throwing away garbage because it's the filth in your life. It's throwing away even the good things in your life because you believe in Jesus, nothing more. That's perspective. The things that you once esteemed, the things that you once valued, the things that you would write on your resume, the things that you would blog about and put on your Facebook status so that everyone else would like it and make you feel better too. All of those things, we realize that that matters not in comparison with knowing Jesus. That's a change in perspective. Jeremiah 31, 34, if you write this down, it's a cross-reference. It says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. And that know in Hebrew is not just know something because your eighth grade science teacher told you to know something. It's know it because you experienced it. That's why in science, books don't matter as much as laboratory work experiments where you can actually see and sense and experience what the truth is. That's the kind of knowledge that we'll have of God when he comes in and changes our perspective. Something is different because we not only know about him, but we've actually experienced him. He says, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The word remember means to call to mind. God doesn't forget our past like you forgot an appointment 
or you forgot to bring your umbrella on a rainy day. God chooses not to call to mind and hold against us the things which we have done against him. We know God because we are fortunate. He knows us only because we are forgiven. And when Christ comes in, our perspective changes. We literally feel differently about everything in life. Another thing happens to us when Christ comes in, our nature changes. Our nature changes. This is a theological concept known as imputed righteousness, and it's the gift of God through faith in Jesus. It it literally says in here that I am found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, verse 9, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. It means that when God looks at us, he's not valuing us based on our resume. He's valuing us based on Christ's resume of dying on the cross and being raised again so that we could stand blameless before God. We don't stand blameless before God because we check off boxes and do good things. We stand blameless before God because Jesus Christ died for us. That's imputed righteousness. We talk a lot about substitutionary atonement, particularly at Easter time, because it's you and I saying, oh, we are sinners and our sins need to be forgiven. Somebody else is going to have to pay for that because we can't afford it. And so Jesus steps in and pays the price, the penalty the judgment for our sin, but a second thing happens, not just substitutionary atonement, him taking the place of our sin, but also imputed righteousness that we get to be called righteous, heirs, sons, daughters, forgiven, clean. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not righteousness based on anything that we've done. It's not righteousness based on the things that we have stopped doing. It's not righteousness based on the things that we never ever did before. It's righteousness because Jesus Christ has imparted that to us. And when the God of this great universe looks at a believer in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see a resume of sin and he doesn't see a resume of obedience. He only sees Jesus And how futile, how twisted, how ignorant when we want to step back across that line and go there again. God, didn't you, don't you want to bless me because I've been acting right lately? Don't want to help me win because I've been making so many wise choices lately? North Carolina, South Carolina, Let me see if I can perfect the art of balancing in between both. Thank you for your righteousness, Jesus, but aren't I doing a really good job? Christ changes our perspective and it changes our nature. Also changes our path. Paul said, I I want to know Christ. Yes, to the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul went from being the guy who caused the suffering of others to being the guy who desired to experience the sufferings of Christ. I would say that that's a complete directional shift. And our path changes too. It's no longer the desires of the flesh. It's no longer the desires of our own lives and our own hearts and our own minds. It's literally the desires of Jesus. Something about us changes. I love this next part. Starting with verse 12, it says, Not that I have already obtained all this. Thank you. 
Doesn't it make you feel better to know that Paul hasn't gotten there yet either? Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, believers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Our middle daughter, Nora Blake, is nine years old now. When she was younger, she used to add unnecessary ED to the ends of words. And she was like six or seven years old and she was still saying, I forgot it. And we just thought it was cute, so we didn't correct it. And we hoped that later on in life it would work itself out. It has, no worries here. We're not forgetting our old ways. Because I, I know the sin in my life. And we're not forgetting our Christian resumes, our mission trips, our Bible studies, our memory verses, because I know the good things by the power of the Holy Spirit that have been accomplished through my life. Forgetting doesn't mean forgetting. Forgetting means forsaking. Because I know those things. My sinful past and even the sins that I struggle with in the present. And I know those things. My success is by the grace of God that I think somehow make me a, a worthwhile believer, pastor, friend, husband, brother, teacher, father. I won't forget those things, but I want to forsake them because none of that matters as much as me knowing and experiencing Jesus. We're called to be a people who don't straddle called to be a people who have our foundation firmly planted in Jesus Christ. And the real problem with trying to straddle some fence in our life of what we think is godly and what we know is not godly or what we think is of Christ and what we know is the past that's not like Christ, but yet we're somehow tempted to go that direction again, like a dog returning to its vomit or a sow returning to, like that whole straddle my, my real fear in trying to create a balancing act between these two spiritual and fleshy worlds is that Jesus is probably 240 meters that way and we're missing it altogether. I want to press in. I want to yearn. I, I pray that for my own life and the life of my family and I pray that for our church too, that we would be a people who are literally categorized and characterized as a people who are pressing in and pressing on and desire nothing else than knowing Jesus more. I think you can sum up this whole book that way. I think you can sum up the life and the ministry and the teachings of Paul that way, who said, not that I've already got it all figured out, but forgetting what is behind, my sin, my resume, my life, my desires, my efforts to balance between, forgetting all of that, forsaking all of that, I wanna follow Jesus his righteousness, not mine. It's his forgiveness, not mine. And I want to be found in him. That's the summary for us today. It is to somehow be a people who wake up every morning knowing that nothing matters more than knowing Jesus. 
And somehow, not by our effort, not by our service, not by our participation, not by our Bible studies, not by our memorization, not by our degrees, not by our... But by him and him alone, we experience a, a, a righteousness and an otherness and a whole different way of living life that comes only through pressing in to Jesus. How are you pressing in? It starts with throwing everything else away so that Christ is all you have because he is all that matters. Where are your temptations? Where are the moments when you're tempted to move back into pride or even wallow in your own shame instead of focusing wholeheartedly? That's a real good name for a series title. Wholeheartedly, with your whole heart on Jesus. I just want to be a person and I want to be a pastor and I want us to be a people who want Jesus that much because we experience him that much. I think our perspective and I think our nature and I think our direction, I think all of that plus more will change as we fully embrace a foundation in Christ and Christ alone. No more back and forth. No more one foot here and one over there. Only in Jesus. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the service and we want to encourage you to reflect on today's message throughout the week. Here at Rolling Hills, our goal is to raise up a community of disciples to be the hands and feet of Christ, and we hope that you will partner with us in doing so. How do you do that? Well, here are several ways. First, join us every Sunday, either online or at one of our physical locations. Join us as we worship our God and learn more about Him and His plan for us. Second, get connected. Check out our Next Steps page on the site to find out how you can engage with us further by serving or joining a community group. And lastly, we want to invite you to partner with us financially. You can do that online through the giving section of our site. All tithes and offerings go to support our ministries both locally and internationally, enabling us to impact lives and share God's word. Again, we are so glad you joined us today. Have a great week.